Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Yeah, I believe you're aware that there's a crisis in journalism. And to be honest with you, there's been a crisis in journalism since the day I got into this industry 17 years ago. The print business models that underpinned serious newspaper reporting collapsed and other sources of news have not come close to filling that hole. The gutting of our journalistic institutions is not exclusively about the internet companies snatching the advertising business, though. A new documentary, Stripped for Parts, fills in a crucial part of the picture, laying the blame for the rapid decline of American newspapers on a single hedge fund, which has bought hundreds of local papers. We'll talk about what happened there and where the hope for journalism lies right after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Though I never worked at a paper, I crossed paths with newspaper reporters often, both as colleagues and competitors. They're an amazing sight to behold as a young journalist. The culture of newspapers, the dedication to getting the facts, the borderline unhealthy love that people had for what they did. It was incredible. And while there's still many great reporters around, the days of Metro Daily newspapers with three, four, five hundred reporters are gone. We're going to try everything moment in local news, which has yielded some brilliant successes, and we will get to those. But it's also a mess out there, and I don't think it's too controversial to say that even with the major papers, blind spots, and biases, there was much more thorough coverage of our cities, suburbs, and rural areas in previous eras than there is now. This morning, we're going to focus in on one reason for the rapid decline in newspapers, in the infrastructure of reporting. And that's hedge funds buying up newspapers and gutting them for some short-run profits. This show was inspired by Rick Goldsmith's new documentary, Strip for Parts, American Journalism on the Brink, which focuses on Alden Global Capital, which happens to own the Bay Area News Group. Welcome, Rick. Glad to be here. Yeah. We're also joined uh, here first by Julie Reynolds, one of the stars of the documentary because of her reporting on Alden uh, Global Capital. She's now a freelance journalist, podcast producer, and a part-time associate editor at The Imprint, a nonprofit news site. Welcome, Julie. Hi, glad to be here. So, Rick, um, talk to me about, you know, just using the Bay Area as an example. Like, what has Alden Global Capital done? Like, how how do they work? Well, Alden Capital works on this thing called the distressed asset investing. They go after industries, News and newspapers in this case that are on the brink, 
that are in, maybe in bankruptcy or in danger of becoming bankrupt, so they can pick them up at a song, uh, at a sale price. Their MO is to buy the paper, to sell the assets, and the, and the main asset is the building. It tends to be the downtown newsroom, which is a little bit out of date anyway, but they can sell the building right away, and then they cut the staff um, by either firing people or offering buyouts to the most experienced reporters. And right away, they're in the black, and they're making money. So even if they've driven the newspaper to its bare bones and ineffective uh, place, they're making money. And they can do that for a while. And that's their genius. And that's also the thing that uh, we all suffer from because the community then loses. The reporters lose their jobs and the community loses their voice. Yeah. Julie Reynolds, as you were investigating Alden, you know, the this main um, action, business action of selling the building out and then like leasing it back to uh, to the newspaper. What were there other ways of of getting to the black uh, faster? Right, because it, it was wasn't just the buildings, it wasn't just the layoffs and buyouts. Right, they had other kind of other tricks too. Oh, plenty of them. Um, in our area, I worked for the Monterey County Herald for ten years, um, and we were sister publication of the Santa Cruz Sentinel. Both got bought by Alden same time as the Bay Area News Group. And the first thing they did was shut down our printing presses. Um, so they set up a hub in Chico, Northern California, four or five hours away from us. Um, and that immediately made our deadlines hours earlier. Um, hmm. The latest I heard, there's a 2 p.m. deadline, which means reporters can't cover any evening meetings. You can't go to even the things people want in their paper, like high school sports or evening hmm. sports games. So it all the news was suddenly being delivered two days late, mm. um, immediately tied our hands, things like that. And then we had, you know, a leaky roof in the building that they didn't fix. So we literally had to move plants under the leaks so that at least the water would go somewhere. <laughs> Not all That's, there you go. There's the reporters, you know, some pluck, some resilience, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, we had no hot water for quite a while. Um, I remember visiting a prison as a reporter and I was so happy to wash my hands in hot water in the oh restroom before I went in because we didn't have it in our office. You know, Rick, I mean, it really seems counterintuitive for a lot of people, I think, that you would come into a product producing enterprise like a newspaper and then just like dilute the product, attenuate the news reporting. I guess it just in the end didn't matter to the business in the short run. Well, it it didn't matter to the business because they had a different model. The traditional publisher going way back um, the last century, a couple of centuries, they had two things going for them. They could make money um, and make lots of money uh, by owning a newspaper, but they also had some sort of civic mission. They had um, they had typically had ties to the community, even if it was a chain paper. Um, the hedge funds had a different model. Their model is purely how much money can we make for the shareholders? And so for them, for this distressed asset investing that I mentioned, it made sense for them to sell off the, um, you know, sell off the buildings and cut the staff because they didn't care about the product. They didn't care about the community. That wasn't in their, um, you know, in their playbook. Yeah. 
You know, um, Strip for Parts, uh, Rick Goldsmith's documentary is going to have two screenings this evening at the New Parkway Theater in Oakland at 6 and at 8.45. First screening sold out. You're going to have to go to the late one. Uh, more info, check out strippedforpartsfilm.com. Uh, We're going to hear a little uh, cut from it. This is really about the culture of newspapers and reporting. It's a Chicago Tribune uh, reporter talking about what gets lost. This newsroom is a fragile thing. It's a constellation of people who pass on to each other the standards and the methods that make it effective. And that was what, what was in peril, and nobody else was stepping up to save it. Um, Julie, in your time working in newspapers, like how did you see that cult? How does that culture like kind of transmitted to you? And do you agree that that was a fragile thing, or do you think that it was is more resilient? Um, it is resilient. I'm very inspired by the nonprofit startups and a, a lot of things that are happening now, happening now across the country. But I do think the thing that was critical for us is that we as journalists were never used to standing up for our own industry. If it was any other industry going through this deliberate dismantling, we'd be all over it, especially, you know, with my background as an investigative reporter. Mm-hmm. But we tended to just, oh, we can't cover that because that's inside baseball. Nobody's going to care. And we let it go on far too long in terms of covering it and also speaking up as employees. Um, Finally, it took the News Guild because as a union representing the workers, they had the right to stand Mm. up and not fear getting fired for it. So that's what started to happen. And, you know, we ended up with the Denver Rebellion where, you know, it was very outspoken move by devoting the entire editorial section of the Denver Post to exposing Alden and what it was doing to local news. Hmm. Rick, has it worked for journalists to push back on particular buyers of newspapers like Alden? It, it's absolutely worked, but it's it's a really uphill battle. Um, Alden went after Gannett, which was the biggest chain of newspapers in 2019, and because of the work that the Guild did, because of the work that people like Julie Reynolds did in exposing what Alden was all about, uh, I think it kind of took the hedge fund by surprise. And they actually lost the public relations battle and they lost the, um, the, the Gannett board, which is key in these kinds of battles, and they lost the shareholders. And when it came down to a vote, the vote turned against Alden taking over the chain. Hmm. Um, there were subsequent events that yeah. didn't work out so well. But for that moment in time, that was a victory for the for the journalists. And there was a board member, and you hear him on the in the film, who says, you know, more effective than even the board coming out against uh, the Alden takeover was the union and the union and the members hmm. who really educated the public to what was at stake and what was at stake for the newspapers and what was at stake for their community. Julie, I mean, one of the things that's been a little surprising to me, I guess, is when Alden and these other vulture uh, hedge funds moved in on these newspapers, it seemed to me that they might just get put out of business after just a few years. But as it has turned out, they've been able to sort of keep on keeping on. Um, has that surprised you at all? And what do what do these papers look like now? Because they still exist. You know, the Bay Area News Group still exists. Still, there's lots of working journalists there still. Yeah, 
I think it surprised me, and I think it surprised the Alden executives, to be honest. <laughs> um, their normal MO, and, and they treat the newspapers like any other business, like a shoe store chain or a pharmacy chain or anything else they acquire. Their normal MO is sort of a three-year turnaround, and I think they just were surprised that there were more and more cuts they could keep making and making and still keep those profit margins uh, abnormally high. Um, you know, their margins are better than the New York Times, according to the data that's been leaked about those, you know, maybe twice as much, mm. you know, the 15 to 30 percent margins. That's that's a huge profit percentage. I think, um, you know, you, you certainly see that that's why they're still acquiring newspapers. You know, they just did sell the Baltimore Sun, but they also bought San Diego Union Tribune. I would not be shocked if they didn't make a move for the L.A. Times, mm. but some antitrust problems down there because they own so much in Southern California. Yeah. Uh, Rick Goldsmith, uh, you know, Joshua Benton at Neiman Labs headline about the Baltimore Sun sale was the Baltimore Sun explores the question of whether there can be a worse newspaper owner than Alden Global Capital. Um, it is Sinclair known for right wing local uh, television. What do you think? Well, I think that's a terrific question. David Smith, who's the the uh, what's his name, the executive mm-hmm. producer of Sinclair, uh, very right wing, very conservative. Um, he a couple of days after the sale, walked into the newsroom and basically lambasted the the reporters for what what they were doing. I mean, he dressed them down, which was um, kind of insane to to think about it. But if there is a worse owner than a hedge fund, than a hedge fund like Dalton Global Capital, it might be Sinclair Broadcasting, which has a um, a, a terrible record in terms of their TV holdings um, of of doing anything approaching of of doing anything approaching fact-based coverage that's right we're talking about the challenges that journalism faces and efforts to revive the industry with rick goldsmith documentary filmmaker who directed the 2024 documentary stripped for parts american journalism on the brink you can see it at 8.45 tonight at the New Parkway Theater. We're also joined by Julie Reynolds, one of the stars of the film, freelance journalist, co-founder of the nonprofit news site Voices of Monterey Bay. We'd love to hear from you. What questions or concerns do you have about local media ownership? You can email forum at kqed.org or call 866-733-6786. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the challenges that the journalism business faces, efforts to revive 
the industry. We're joined by Rick Goldsmith, documentary filmmaker who directed the 2024 documentary Strip for Parts, American Journalism on the Brink. Also joined by Julie Reynolds, freelance journalist and co-founder of the nonprofit news site Voices of Monterey Bay. I want to add a couple of other voices into the conversation, people who are working on news startups. We're joined by S. Mitra Kalita, CEO of URL Media and publisher of Epicenter NYC, veteran journalist and media executive and a prolific author and commentator. Uh, welcome, Mitra. Thanks, Alexis. Great to be with you. Yeah. We're also joined by Ramona Guargas, who is co-founder and CEO of San Jose Spotlight. Welcome. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks, Ramona. Um, so why don't we, uh, you know, Mitra, we got to start with you because you used to work at the LA Times and they did have massive layoffs uh, last week. I mean, what do you think those uh, layoffs say about the state of the paper? Yeah, I mean, the, you know, really the the only reaction to the layoffs is is just deep sadness. I mean, it's it's bad um, for, you know, as we've talked about, it's bad for democracy. It's bad for the citizens of Los Angeles. Um, it's bad for the watchdog journalism that we need. But you know, I'll tell you, um, there's there's just two thoughts that really strike me on a few levels um, of what we saw with the L.A. Times. Because journalists of color were disproportionately affected this time around. Mm -hmm. And I've watched um, layoffs at the L.A. Times. You know, it feels like, honestly, for my whole career, and I've been a journalist for 30 years. But, you know, journalists of color are very fragile. And the L.A. Times over the last decade has really worked to, you know, meet the communities of Los Angeles with representation of its own newsroom in terms Mm -hmm. of demographics. And so, you know, the typical things we say during a layoff, like, you know, this might have been a blessing or take the time to figure this out or, um, you know, it's not your fault. Like this just does not apply to first generation, um, maybe white collar workers or college graduates. I mean, these are the folks who are breadwinners in their families. They don't necessarily have generational wealth to fall back upon. And so as journalism tries to face, um, you know, these economic realities, as we've talked about, you know, who gets to be a journalist is such an important tool in redefining journalism for more people. And I just feel like we all, you know, witnessed just a reversal of what took a decade to build, a mm-hmm. reversal of decades um, in that action. And then just personally, as as you mentioned, you know, I was the managing editor of the LA Times from 2015 to 2016. I hired many of these journalists and, and arguably my greatest legacy in that short time at the LA Times was being able to hire folks into social media and video audience, um, digital, that they were diverse was just, um, you know, an additional uh, boon, if you will. But I really Mm -hmm. did try to reinvent the digital um, reality of our times. And these are precisely the departments that have been decimated in Mm -hmm. this lady off. I mean, presumably the LA Times did that because they have not been able to make money on those things, right? Um, what do you think is the answer there, right? Um, is there, is it, is it hiring them into different parts of the paper? Is it like, what do you think? Well, it's that they could not, um, make money overall and that the LA Times is a union shop. And so there are rules on, you know, last Mm. in, first out Mm. because of this said fragility of journalists of color, we tend to be the last in and the first out. Right. And because of digital innovation, 
you know, you might have needed a video editor 10 years ago during the pivot to video, and then we pivoted to something else. Mm -hmm. And so that video editor leaves, and then we're back in a moment where 90-second reels are all the rage, and you need your video <laughs> editors again. And that last-in, first-out rule, um, you know, does affect the ability for us to continuously adapt to this change. And I would say that I'm looking at 2024 as a, as a newspaper publisher or as a, as a, as a news publisher. You see, that was very Freudian of me. There's no <laughs> anything I do, but, uh, but I can't think of a time where we face so much economic uncertainty, the fragility of democracy. There's the AI question. I mean, like, you know, where do we begin mm -hmm. with what we have to deal with? I think there's a serious question over whether last in, first out is the best way for us to address mm -hmm. these layoffs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Ramona, let's let's uh, talk a bit about your startup here. I mean, I, I think Mitra did an amazing job laying out I mean, <laughs> economic uncertainty, the AI question, the fragility of democracy at, layered atop, you know, these longstanding trends, the acquisition uh, of many papers by, you know, uh, forces that have no civic uh, mission at all. Um, what's your response to this, Ben, in founding San Jose Spotlight? And how have you tried to build it to sort of be resilient to all those forces kind of working against you? Yeah, definitely. So it it, it is a very incredibly tough effort. And um, I have to say, I, I didn't do it alone. I'm very fortunate. Sometimes people think that you know, I, I did this all by myself or I was the founder, but I have an amazing co-founder and he's also my husband, Josh Baruse, who handled all of basically the fundraising and building community support so that I could focus on kind of the editorial side. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's really critical because journalists traditionally, at least me, I can speak for myself, may not have kind of that skill set of asking for money or running campaigns or trying to create a business plan or, um, you know, or write a grant to get funding. So it's really important to have someone at the table, in my case, you know, my husband, who can help you sort of create the business model, um, because there are a lot of forces working against you. And in San Jose, you know, we were up against kind of this this idea of nonprofit news being so new and being so young and people not understanding what it means to donate to a newsroom. Like mm -hmm. they donate to other nonprofits and causes, but what does it mean to, you know, donate to journalism? Like that concept is still pretty new and it's new in San Jose. So it's really, a, it was a matter of like changing the narrative of, of public support and helping people understand why they need to donate, even if it's five dollars a month, the price of a cup of coffee. Like, and so, what's that look like for you all on a on a model? Like, what percentage of the money is coming from kind of those local subscribers, basically? What's coming from big philanthropy? What's coming from other sources? Yeah, a really good question. One thing we learned really early on is to diversify our revenue streams and not rely on any just anyone. And so, uh, reader revenue and gifts from the public make up about a quarter of our budget. But we also receive money from foundation grants. We receive, uh, you know, limited advertising on our newsletter and and in sort of these hidden spots kind of on our website. We do um, events and we do sponsorships for events. So there's other revenue streams, but for us. We don't have a paywall. We'll mm -hmm. never ask the public to, you know, to pay to mm -hmm. read our journalism because we think it's important that people from all walks of life have access to our journalism, whether or not they can pay for it. It's mission driven instead of clicks or page views or impressions or trying to appease, you know, corporate shareholders. Mm -hmm. um, and in the end, 
it's been five years. So it's yeah. working. You know, the community has seen value in San Jose Spotlight and what we do and they step up and they support it. Yeah, definitely more in the public media, public uh, radio kind of vein. Um, let's bring in uh, our first call. Let's bring in Stephen in Napa. Welcome. Hi, good morning. Um, I really look forward to this documentary and I don't want to question the veracity of it at all until I watch it. I'm just curious if there is a disproportionate blame being put on hedge funds. And I'm not at all championing these vulture capitalists. I think uh, I'm a former writer and producer and director. And what I've seen is social media Mm -hmm. has cannibalized journalism to the point of extinction. And there's one woman in the California legislature, I forget her name, but she's trying to pass a bill so that these platforms have to pay media organizations and journalists for the content that they link up. I mean, it's just, it's, it seems like a no brainer. I don't know if it can pass, but I'm just curious to see what your guests think about that. Totally. Steven, uh, thank you for that. And I, I'll also say, why not both? Everybody can be getting newspapers. Um, Rick, uh, why, don't, why don't you take this on? Because I think it's probably, uh, I would guess this is, is kind of the biggest question you get about the, the focus on Alden. Yeah. Uh, the first thing to say is the um, the mess that newspapers and journalism are in in this country is complex. And anybody that tries to reduce it to one thing is missing the big picture. So part of that picture that was being missed up until about 2016 when Julie started her investigation, was that hedge funds were um, rapidly speeding up the demise of local newspapers, that every time a hedge fund came in to take over a newspaper, the results were disastrous. It was first felt by the staff, and then it was felt by the community. So I think that that we don't want to overemphasize, but we don't want to underemphasize the destruction that um, that hedge funds are doing. And there are things that we can do about it. There's antitrust legislation that can be put into effect that exists now. There are this legislation. Um, there was a Stop Wall Street Looting Act that was on the table a few years ago um, to regulate hedge funds. Hedge funds do not have the same public responsibility in terms of SEC filings and that sort of thing as um, regular newspaper companies or chains even do. So they have to be held accountable. And the um, the destruction is is rapid and it's becoming more rapid because of the hedge funds. The other problems are large as the caller um discusses, and they need to be paid attention to, too. And every community that I get into, there's there's a community response. You know, in San Jose, the spotlight mm-hmm. ca- came up. Um, there are a lot of small... Right. Berkeley side, Oakland side. Yeah. yeah. So that's, that's to just, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. um, restate yeah. that it's complex and the people working on these problems are numerous, and that's what we all have to do. Mitra, uh, what's your perspective on this? You know, I think, at at least as I was coming up, it seemed to me like part of the problem was you just couldn't get the advertising dollars that you could in print world, in the digital world, and you also, uh, you know, until fairly recently, couldn't really get people to subscribe to digital publications. That's right, that's right. Yeah, what do you you think 
Yeah. And I don't know if you remember this, Alexis, but you and I came up, you were at the Atlantic mm-hmm. and I was at Quartz. And I feel like a part of our careers, we were able to leverage social media mm-hmm. to actually great benefit, right? We were able to reach new audiences. We, you know, committed perhaps a new type of journalism that was, you know, people often deride clickbait, but, you know, what's wrong with writing arresting headlines that get people into <laughs> your work, right? Like, I do think there was a moment where social media represented um, a more modern way of committing journalism. And I'm really proud of the role that played in my career. I, I rely on those lessons every day. What we didn't do was marry two areas. One was the economics of how do you uh, make money off of that, mm-hmm. uh, which I'll come back to. The second was, is the mission of these social platforms aligned with the mission of journalism? And so what happened? We handed over our content to the Googles of the world, the Facebooks of the world. And I don't know that we were as discerning on, you know, is Mark Zuckerberg really about (laughs) informing the public and upholding democracy? Or did Mark Zuckerberg launch Facebook to tell you whether women at Harvard were attractive or not, right? Like the mission of who is doing business with each other, I think really matters. And I just, I I do have some regrets over not being Mm. wider eyed on that, you know, for what it's worth. And actually, I'm speaking to you from Charleston, South Carolina, where a bunch of local news publishers are getting together to talk about what should our position be in the face of AI so Mm. that we don't go down this road where social media builds its brands on the backs of our content. We contort ourselves to create content optimized for those platforms and because of sheer size, they win and we don't. Yeah. Right? Or as has happened now, which is essentially they drop us. <laughs> I mean, you can't get... They, they're right. They, yeah. they're, and because they're able to pivot... As technology companies, they are able to pivot a lot faster and also have data that we never had access to. So mm-hmm. I think the caller's question is right on. I mean, I, you know, I'm not going to let hedge funds off that easily, but I will say what was the other failure of our industry? It's to constantly prove our value to customers. Um, And this is the big tension right now as companies are pivoting, you know, like e-commerce, for example, like you'll always need a, you know, you always need clothing, you'll need a toothbrush, you'll need all the things I can get on Amazon. I think there's a question of, do we need the news? Mm. And I think for many of us, and I'm hearing this from Ramona and what she's doing in San Jose and what I'm trying to do at Epicenter and URL, it's for us to be really transparent on the utility of the information we're giving Mm. audiences Mm -hmm. to create value and play a transformational role in their lives. We just have to be way more, Mm. um, yeah, I think upfront about that role that we play in Mm. ways that, you know, a a clicky headline might have not quite, um, not quite proven that value proposition. Mm. Let's bring in another caller, uh, going in a slightly different direction here. Uh, Harriet in Oakland. Welcome. Hello. Thanks for having me. Hey, thanks for coming on. Um, Yeah. So I'm Harriet Rowan. I'm a reporter at the San Jose Mercury News, and I'm also the newly um, elected chair guild or yeah, chair of our guild. And um, I'm just was listening very intently. I'm going to the movie tonight with several of our coworkers and obviously have a lot invested in this um, (laughs) discussion. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. I was calling to say, you know, we, we're organizing, um, trying to get uh, our staff a raise after nearly a decade without one. Um, 
And yeah, I just I think there's a future for the Mercury News in San Jose, and we just have to figure out what that is. Yeah. You know, when you talk to people who've been at the paper for a long time, I mean, what do they tell you about what has changed, what has stayed the same? I mean, I think one of the I've been there that for four years now, and I've just seen a, an immense amount of talent come and go. Mm. And uh, there's, you know, I'm I've been there four years now, and I'm nearly to the top of seniority. Um, I'm among among the people who have been there the longest, and there's just uh, what we lose with every person that leaves. At this point, it's a lot of people retiring, you know, after decades at the newspaper. And it's just, it's heartbreaking to see it go without something there replacing it. And so we're, you know, uh, we're hiring, (laughs) but we're also working to, you know, make our newspaper stronger and do better work and cover more things. Yeah. Hey, Harriet, uh, thanks a lot for that. Appreciate um, the call and I hope you have a good time at the screening tonight. We're talking about the challenges that journalism faces and efforts to revive the industry. We've been talking with Rick Goldsmith, documentary filmmaker who directed the 2024 documentary Stripped for Parts, American Journalism on the Brink. Also joined by Mitra Kalita, who's CEO of URL Media, publisher of Epicenter NYC. Joined by Julie Reynolds, one of the stars of the documentary. She's a freelance journalist and co-founder of nonprofit news site Voices of Monterey Bay. And Ramona Guargas, who is co-founder and CEO of San Jose Spotlight, a startup media company there in San Jose, although hardly a startup now. It's been around for, for some years. We're taking your calls as well. What local news outlets do you support financially? How do you think about the problem of local news uh, in, in your city or in your neighborhood? And what questions do you have about you know, local media ownership? You can email forum at kqed.org. You can find us on all of the different social channels or go on our digital community. You can give us a call at 866-733-6786. Noel on Discord has a uh, kind of shocking uh, comment, which is, Alden jacked up my 13-week Barrier News Group subscription for the paper so much over the past few years, I still can't believe it. Yet I continue to pay to help whatever journalists are left who work for the paper. Got my latest 13-week subscription bill. It's now $280.21. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary.
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madder. We're talking about the trouble in our journalistic institutions, what's caused it, what possible solutions might exist. Joined by Ramona Guargas, co-founder and CEO of San Jose Spotlight, Esmitra Kalita, CEO of URL Media and publisher of Epicenter NYC, old colleague of mine as well, Julie Reynolds, freelance journalist, co-founder of the nonprofit news site Voices of Monterey Bay, and Rick Goldsmith, whose documentary Stripped for Parts American Journalism on the Brink inspired this show. Got a screening tonight at the Parkway. It's at 840, actually, um, and that's the one that's not sold out. Um, let's get to, I mean, Patrick has uh, an amazing comment. Thank you for this, Patrick. It kind of gets to the heart of this whole discussion. Patrick writes, I think we can all agree that the hedge fund is a bad ownership model. <laughs> what is a newspaper model that works and is scalable? Is nonprofit news profitable? Are Berkeley side and Oakley si- Oakland side viable? How about one person shops like the Berkeley scanner? What is the model? This question has not been answered. I think we should just take this one around the horn and let's start uh, with you, Rick. Well, one of the things that is back on the table is public funding for journalism, which a lot of people at first um, listen think, oh, my God, you know, First Amendment stuff, uh, government in our face and so forth. But it's um, journalism is a public good. And the business model that has existed for 150 to 200 years was based on advertising. That has gone away, whether they get the money from Google and Facebook that's coming to digital or not. That model has gone away and it is finished. And we need to um, we need to accept that. There are a lot of proposals out there and there are a lot of good people. Uh, this is a group called Free Press, which was started by Robert McChesney and uh, John Nichols. Um, that has proposals out there, which talks about how to use public funding to pay for these services in the same way that we pay for police and fire and the military and public schools and libraries. This, These things we consider a public good. We should consider that for journalism. It's not an easy fix. There are a lot of really good questions, but um, it needs to be on the table. Uh, Julie Reynolds, what do you think? I do agree with Rick. Absolutely. Um, you know, I've enjoyed Canadian broadcasting and <laughs> the kind of news reporting they do. It's, you know, pretty spectacular. There's also another model um, besides the nonprofit here in Santa Cruz. And one of the problems with some of us nonprofits is that we're just too small. We can't replace the paper of record right. and cover every meeting and all that. I, I liken us to that we're more like the Sunday magazine you used to get in your paper. Mm-hmm. But we have a model in Santa Cruz that's I'm watching very closely, and that's Ken Doctor, who used to be a Knight Ritter executive, has started a kind of hybrid model that's very much reader-supported. People pay for subscriptions, but it's still a for-profit. Uh, but it's very mission-driven to be a news. Mm-hmm. And in fact, it has replaced the Santa Cruz Sentinel as the paper of record. Mm-hmm. They are doing much more in-depth coverage they have a newsroom of 10 which in our area is like unheard of (laughs) these days you know post all um so i see that as like a very promising model i I think they're in their third year and and close to achieving profitability and they may pilot out in other cities so i'm watching that one really closely too it the point being there isn't one model i think it's going the answer and that is happening already is Things like San Jose Spotlight or Voices and 
and then Ken's model, look out Santa Cruz. These kinds of things are popping up all over the country. Yeah. And, you know, some will sink, some will float to the top, but journalists are not giving up by any means. Um, we train young journalists in the Salinas Valley every summer. These are high school kids and they are so eager to do the work. Mm. And it's, it's just so heartwarming to see them because they are full of energy and they're covering neighborhoods that have never had news coverage before and they're doing it in their own way. Ramona, you know, one of the things that the paper of record had that seems hard to to replicate is both like the sort of depth of reporting and depth of knowledge about a city, which obviously you have at San Jose Spotlight, but then also the kind of power of that distribution, like the institutional power to kind of put an issue onto, you know, or into the minds of civic leaders. Um, How do you solve for that second part of the problem? Yeah, definitely. I think it goes back to what you mentioned, Alexis, which is that, you know, the knowledge and the content is key. I think for a long time, newspapers had sort of an arrogant attitude of they need us, they'll come to us. You know, we don't have to adapt. We don't have to be digital first. The amount of time and energy and resources that was put into figuring out what's going to go on 1A, the front page on Sunday, rather than ensuring the website doesn't crash every time a pop-up ad takes over, which was what was happening with the Mercury News. Um, And these are the kinds of attitudes, these are the kinds of, you know, a lack of progress, a lack of innovation, a lack of wanting to adjust and adapt to the changes that very obviously were happening in our industry, just like the, the caller mentioned, right, with the online, the advent of the internet and people now going online to look for a car or look for a job or the classifieds, all of that was replaced by the internet. And instead of adapting, newspapers thought, well, they're going to come back. They need us. And the truth is that we're not, as sounds like we're not trying to replace the Mercury News, but we're doing things that that they're not, right? And we're doing things that we know take time. And sometimes I think in the in the rush to get like the breaking news and some of the like the the com- competition about tweeting things out or being first, we we sometimes miss miss the idea that readers really want like a, a deeper reported story. They want analyses, they want investigations, they want enterprise. So I think, you know, with a small team that we have, we say no to a lot of things. Mm-hmm. And we know the Mercury News does a lot of things well. Like those are areas that maybe like breaking news or, or weather and things like that. Like we, we're never going to touch sports. But where we can come in is we can do a deep dive investigation or an enterprise piece of journalism, an explainer, an in-depth analysis piece. And those are the things that readers really want and that's how we're able to to gain that influence. And the truth is the number of readers who want a print product is going down. Mm-hmm. It is going down. It usually tends to be an older generation. Folks don't keep subscribing. And newspapers are the only product where I know of where the product's quality has gone down. The newspaper is thinner mm-hmm. and thinner and thinner, right? The B section mm-hmm. no longer has as many local stories, but yet we're asking folks to pay more. more. Yeah. Um, just like that reader said, my own mother-in-law like was was paying hundreds of dollars a year to subscribe, and they kept wanting more and more and more. Yet her paper's getting thinner and thinner and thinner, and it's not delivered on time. And it was dropped in the puddle in front yeah. of her. Yeah, oh, right, 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 right. So, right. so selfishly, <laughs> I really do think nonprofit and and digital only is the future. Right, yeah. like might be biased here, but yeah, <laughs> very much believe that this is the 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 way forward. Mitra, I wanted to ask you about another component of Patrick's question, which is what's sort of a scalable model? Because one one question I've had about a lot of the smaller nonprofit um, news sources, which are amazing and which do fantastic work, is 
whether the things they're doing for the core readership that is small, right, like the people who are really invested in like the civic functioning and, and things like that, whether they can, can whether they can actually scale up doing those things or whether they need to do some other kind of reporting or, or publishing in order to reach the kind of size that would give them um, more, more heft and throw weight in kind of civic discussions. Yeah, I'll answer your question in two ways. One with my epicenter hat on, you know, saying in many ways, um, digital news businesses need to operate more like small businesses than the digital media ecosystem that hmm. we thought we entered. And so for epicenter, that means diversified revenue, um, you know, micro revenue uh, from, let's say, film festivals or small businesses, um, you know, of in the. $1,000 to $5,000 range mm -hmm. is actually really important revenue for us. And so, you know, I'll answer that by saying one might be to say, is scale your imperative or is it to mm. actually serve the community that you're in and serve it really well and, you know, take equal inspiration from small businesses or perhaps like B2B, the business to business um, niche media um, that has actually been somewhat insulated from um, a lot of the bloodbath we're seeing around us. The second part, I'll answer with what I ended up doing, which was, you know, I did not want to run two companies, especially two media companies in this moment. But it dawned on me that coming out of an LA Times and a CNN and really like my mainstream media hat, you know, an outlet like Epicenter needed to scale, not just for the economics of it, but the discoverability of our content, mm -hmm. right? That you're always up against the Googles and Facebooks of the world, even as I um, you know, to cry them, I need them. So I launched URL Media. My co-founder um, runs a, a black radio station in Philadelphia. Her name is Sarah Lomax. And we got together and we said, could we solve for the needs of these small outlets and scale, meaning band together to collectively sell advertising and share content, but not have to sacrifice who we're serving? And I think this is the key to your question. What would it take for us to make it, one is embrace diversified revenue. So being a partner in the URL Media Network, we have 27 partners. For many of them, we were the first advertising they ever sold mm -hmm. because they came out of subscription-only businesses or a nonprofit philanthropic model. And we've given them a bit of a playbook to now access you know, advertising from Nike, Hulu, um, in some cases, state governments, right? So so there is power in the collective mm -hmm. and the scale. The second piece is this, and which I think has been un, uh, kind of unstated, but we're talking around throughout this conversation, journalism is really expensive, right? And it's kind of the black hole of like the, you know, you hire an editor and ask him or her to create a team of three people. Like by the end of the year, you know, it's going to be a request for six people. We've all been there, right? Content is just, it's a never ending. Um, and in some ways the internet, like even fueled that even more. So we share content so that we can feel bigger than we are. And therefore you don't need to send, you know, two people to the press conference on the census, an issue that affects all of our communities profoundly. But if one person goes, could I just take their copy and so we function a little bit like a, a you know, a wire service mm -hmm. looking out for each other. That has been very successful mm -hmm. just because mm -hmm. the resource piece of it feels like something we really um, yeah. have not solved for. But to, um, you know, the earlier point from Ramona, our, our, our audiences are expecting that from us. Yeah. 
Uh, great, great model. And Cal Matters um, now supporting so many newsrooms across the, the state of California yeah. with the reporting that they're yeah. doing. Um, let's uh, let's go to the phones. We've got a bunch of, uh, of great calls here. Um, Henry in Santa Clara. Welcome. Yeah, good morning. Here's a brief quote from a 2021 article in the Columbia Journalism Review by McChesney and Nichols. It's a very practical approach to public funding, I think. Simply, the federal government would provide a lump sum to every county in the country annually based on the county's population to pay for nonprofit journalism within that county. So that would be administratively simple, you know, uh, mm-hmm. tax-wise quite inexpensive and effective. I mean, it, to me, the, the model, as uh, you've discussed earlier, the market model is, is broken and uh, unpredictable, and this is such an important public good. We should at least have a, something like this local – the, the proposal is called the Local Journalism Initiative. Mm-hmm. Hey, Henry, thanks so much. Rick, I know this is uh, up your ass. <laughs> well, I think he's hit the the nail on the head. We um, the amount of money uh, the government has been involved in journalism from the beginning. The founding fathers uh, passed the Postal Act of 1792, when it basically uh, gave gave money to the newspapers to be disseminated to everybody in the country without. Um, regard to ability ability to pay. And the founding fathers felt like this experiment in democracy, which it was in the late 1700s, an experiment, was not going to work unless you had a diversity of voices um, coming together and trying to solve the massive problems mm-hmm. that we have. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to get back to that uh, notion that... Um, this is this is for us. This is for to make democracy work, to make um, to to pull as many people into the conversation to solve the great problems that are in front of us. So yeah. um, that's 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 my response. Yeah, to that. you know, another super interesting and kind of fun example of this too is during the war on poverty. Local Office of Economic Opportunity offices sometimes funded local papers. So, like if you look into the history of Bayview Hunters Point, some of the best coverage of what was happening in the 1960s is from a, a paper called The Spokesman, um, which was funded uh, through the Office of Economic Opportunity. Um, let's bring in uh, Don in Menlo Park. Yeah, this is a really interesting topic. Um, my question is, and I think one of the panelists alluded to this with a kind of a combined distribution model, is um, I subscribe to The Washington Post because I really like their national and international coverage. Um, what I don't like is I actually don't get the net, the the local coverage, which I mm-hmm. make up for with NPR. Is why is there a model where these smaller <clears throat> local newspapers can uh, become off, um, like almost a subsidiary or bundle with larger, more widely distributed newspapers like the New York Times or the Post or the LA mm-hmm. Times or whatever? Um, to, to so because. The Washington Post has the newsroom to go and do those um, kind of more expensive stories than, say, the Mercury News. Yeah. Um, so I wondered if that model has been addressed. And also, you know, because I also subscribe to and support NPR, why doesn't NPR, in particular KQED, <laughs> um, you know, they give an, the, a New York Times subscription if you, you know, 
subscribe a certain amount. I'm like, why don't they give a San Francisco Chronicle or oh, or like a, or a bundle a of local, local news uh, things? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, um, Rick Goldsmith, I assume that you have heard um, a bunch of. Thank you for that, Don. Um, I assume you've heard a bunch of different kind of permutations of this kind of model. Um, there are all sorts of collaborations. I think one of the things that one of the positives of this crisis in local journalism is that news organizations have kind of moved away from this idea of getting the scoop, getting it first. And um, we had, uh, you know, we followed some people from the Bay Area News Group who were actually in collaboration with people from KQED on um, the matters of police accountability Mm -hmm. in the state of California. And they worked together. And what we're finding all around the country is there are radio stations collaborating with newspapers. There are community groups collaborating with startups. um, And I think it brings into the notion that there's not just one kind of king of the hill, Mm -hmm. the journalist, uh, or the journalist at a legacy paper that is going to determine the journalism for your community, that you want to get as many voices as possible into your kind of barrel of facts mm. to be to be able to make decisions. Mm-hmm. We've got uh, just a few comments here I wanted to read in through the end. You know, Susan writes, as a former journalist, I think the demise of newspapers is devastating. I subscribe to three national papers and two national magazines as a form of philanthropy, but it's hard to persuade friends to do the same because they get their news for free online. Or, I'll note parenthetically, from the New York Times, which has eaten up so much subscription revenue from from people. Another listener uh, writes in, we still subscribe to the Chronicle. We like the paper, but we also consider it a donation to local journalism. Journalists save our country. Thanks for that. Uh, And Curtis writes, the beneficiary of the new revenue model is clearly Google. Through its paid advertisement model, Google has taken the revenue stream of virtually all written information on the planet. Google is the hoarder and needs to start giving back the revenue stolen from reporters and writers. Thanks for that as well, Curtis. We've been talking about the challenges that journalism faces and efforts to revive the industry with Rick Goldsmith, documentary filmmaker who directed the 2024 documentary, Stripped for Parts, American Journalism on the Brink. There's a screening tonight at the New Parkway in Oakland. Thanks so much, Rick. Thank you. We've also been joined by Julie Reynolds, a star of the documentary, co-founder of the nonprofit news site Voices of Monterey Bay. Thank you, Julie. Thanks so much. Been joined by Esmitra Kalita, CEO of URL Media and publisher of Epicenter NYC. Nice to talk with you, Mitra. Same, Alexis. Great to reconnect yeah. here. And we've been joined by Ramona Guargis, co-founder and CEO of San Jose Spotlight. Thanks, Ramona. Thanks for having me. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Form Ahead with guest host Guy Marzarati. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. 
We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.